morning. Our text is in Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Pastor Jason and Jenny are away this weekend, so we want to pray for them as they're away from us and pray that God would give them refreshment in that time. And and we want you to continue to pray for this new um, marriage, if you will, that's happening as we bring Dan Carlson, Nick Carlson, onto staff and uh, add him to our pastoral staff and do some shifting. There will be, as we said, some responsibility shifting and those kinds of things that will kind of progress through the summer. We have the summer to kind of get that all in order and in place and really launch into the fall months. But we're looking forward to Dan coming. He will be here, Lord willing, on on site the second Wednesday of uh, June is the date that he will officially be here at the church with us. So we're looking forward to that. This morning, um, we want to look again chronologically at the life of Christ. We're just taking the Gospels collectively and trying as best we can to chronologically walk through his life, seeing the glory of Christ. That's the goal, to, to see the glory of Christ, to magnify Christ as he's magnified in the Gospels, that we would more clearly see his glory. Now this morning, it's interesting as we walk through it that we are actually going to back up in the text. If you remember last week, we were in, in Luke chapter 5. And now we're going back to Luke chapter 4. It's because in Luke's Gospel, he doesn't write it chronologically. That's why I say you have to kind of discern chronologically how the events lined up in Jesus' life because the Gospel writers didn't always give you a chronological account of them. And as best we can discern, what happened in chapter 4 happened before chapter 5 uh, of, of Luke. I mean, excuse me, what happened in chapter 5 happened before what happened in chapter 4. And so we're backing up in the, in the gospel, but we're going chronologically along. Part of the reason, one of the reasons, and they're not exactly sure why Luke put it there, but one of the reasons they think he might have put it there was to contrast the reaction of the people in his hometown of Nazareth when he went into the synagogue and initially they accepted him but then toward the end they tried to push him off the cliff remember and he 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 that didn't happen it wasn't yet his time so their reaction there was very violent and in the text today as we read it the reaction is much different they received Jesus here in the sense that they wanted him to stay around they wanted him to do more and to teach more there where he was at in Capernaum But Jesus said, I must go elsewhere. And so he didn't stay. But the reactions were different. And and we don't always know why the gospel writer put it where he did. But those are good questions to ask. Why? Why is it out of order here? And that would be one of the reasons possibly that the gospel writer was trying to contrast the two reactions to Jesus. But whatever the case, let's read together beginning at verse 31 of chapter 4. And here we find three accounts of Jesus healing people. In verse 31 it says this, And he went down to Capernaum, the city of, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, 
and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And then verse 38 says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any other who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid hands on, on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We're going to look at that text this morning, and we're going to look at it a bit differently than we normally would. We're going to go to the very end of the text to begin. And what I want us to pull out of that is ways in which we see the glory of Christ. And I think the first place that we see it comes right at the end of the text. And I want us to spend some time thinking here. I'm not going to answer all of your questions in this regard, in this point, but I hope I cause you to ask questions of Scripture that will be helpful and healthy for you to do. It's interesting, it says in verse 42 that when it was day, after he had spent the, the previous day, probably long into the night, dealing with the needs of people and healing many, he arose early and he went out, and it doesn't tell us this in Luke's Gospel, but in Mark's Gospel it tells us that he went out to pray to a quiet place. So the inference is he worked hard the day before, had to have been weary, but he got up early before the disciples because they didn't know he'd left. He went out and he prayed early in the morning. Now, I hope the question we ask ourselves is why? Why? Jesus was God. We've said enough, I hope, to help us to begin to answer that. He was God. He was fully God. But in his incarnate life, he was fully man. And I think as we ask ourselves the question of why, the answer is primarily because he needed to in order to fight sin. Jesus coming would have had no result and no fruit had at any point Jesus succumbed to sin. And so I think part of his getting up early and going out to a quiet place was part of his battle against sin, to be the sinless Savior that we all need. There was something in that that helped him persevere in righteousness perfectly to be the sinless sin bearer that we all desperately need and cling to if we're Christians. I think we see the glory of Christ in those circumstances and it just bursts off the page to us. I've told you as we began this series how significant the incarnation has been to me in my ministry and beginning to see 
that God fully entered into the brokenness. I've said it a number of times, but can't answer all the questions. I can't answer why. I cannot answer why. William Cooper, three times, had to go to the institution to fight melancholy, to fight depression. That he had to be institutionalized. I cannot tell you all of the whys in the small picture of that for Cooper. But it helps me to be able to tell people like William Cooper if I had to, or you, though I don't have the answer of why the brokenness has come upon you the way it has. I don't have the answer of why Lou Gehrig's disease was the diagnosis for the woman in my daughter's church only less than a year ago and why she left three children still in school behind. I don't know why in the small picture of that. Big picture is sin. We've all sinned and brokenness. Small picture. But I can say to those people, Jesus fully entered into that brokenness. God fully entered into it. I think that is incredibly significant. It is incredibly helpful for us to see that. And we see the glory of God in dimensions that we will not see it unless we realize that He did fully enter into it. And it's texts like this that tell us that. It was no cakewalk for the second member of the Trinity to enter into this world and this brokenness and live without sin. It took a battle that raged for Him. I believe that with all of my heart. He battled. He fought the fight of faith successfully every time when He was tempted with sin. And part of the way He did it was that He knew He needed the Father. He knew He needed the relationship that this signifies in order to do that in His life. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. That text that we've had twice on the screen in the last weeks. I want you to look at it with me. I want you to really think about it as I read it. I I stopped last week as I read it and asked you to ask questions. I hope you ask questions when you read texts like this. Look at what it says. Peter is preaching to the Gentiles here, the good news of Christ. And as I picked it up in verse 37, it says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. And that's exactly where we're at in the text now in Luke. And this is what it says. How God, now that has to be God the Father, God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now think about that. Three members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all talked about in that text. And Jesus in His incarnate life, His life here on earth, it says that God anointed Jesus, who was God, fully God, fully man, but fully God, with the Holy Spirit and with power. It seems to me that ties back to the text that we just read in Luke. That's why Jesus went out. It had something to do with all that we just read. It had something to do with the 
the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, of why Jesus, though fully God, as fully man, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. It was no cakewalk. God supplied the Holy Spirit and power into Jesus' life. Jesus lived fully as a man. Fully as a man. In some way, though we can't answer all of that, He bracketed His, his divinity in such a way that He could live fully as a man in that context. Now, does that answer all the questions we may have? No, but I hope at least we think about it. And the more I think we see the humanity of Christ without denying His, his divine nature, that He was fully God, the more we see of the glory of the Gospel. That Jesus fully entered in to the point where He sought the Father regularly. Cried out to the Father, I'm sure, for power and for strength to fight sin. Jesus' purpose in coming was to live to be the sinless sacrifice for us. And had He failed at any point, we would have no Savior and we would have no hope. He fought the battle to be sinless. And He fought it in this way. I hope that strengthens your heart and encourages your heart and shows us how much, if Jesus needed to do that, how much we need to draw away. How much we need to look to the Father and ask for the power of the Spirit. Remember when Jesus left, He said, I'll send another who will come, the Holy Spirit, to come to help His people, to help the church. That's the model that Jesus lays out for us. If Jesus had to do it, dare we neglect it? You see the purpose and the plan and the way in which it's laid out for us here? Jesus resisted sin. And, and we've talked about this now. The question that may ask, you may ask yourself as we're going to turn to it in a minute. In this text, Jesus did three different miracles or sets of miracles. In the first case, he cast out a demon. In the second case, he raised Peter's mother-in-law from this, the bed of illness. And in the third case, multitudes of people came to him and he healed them and he cast out demons. And so the question we ask is, how did he do that? I've said to you that I believe with all of my heart as I look at Scripture that that Jesus resisted sin exactly the way we're to resist it. In other words, He gave us a perfect model of how to resist sin. We will not do it perfectly like He did, but we still have the same model. And that is to look to the Father and in the power of the Spirit. That's the model we have, the model that Jesus gave us. And I think He resisted sin that way. He only did what He what the Father directed him to do it, and he did it in the power of the Spirit as regards to resisting sin. Now, if you take that to a next level, you have to ask yourself, did, did he perform all of the miracles that he performed by the power of the Spirit, by the third person of the Trinity in his incarnate life? And I still say to you, I don't know for sure, but I certainly lean there because of texts like this. 
texts like this that we read out of the book of Acts that tell us how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And you look at other places when he came out of the temptation that he went in in the power of the Spirit, the Scripture says. Um, it, it seems that Jesus lived his life on earth, his incarnate life, in the Trinitarian relationship of looking to the Father and dependence on the, on the Spirit. Now, sometimes we look at the Trinity and we just say, we just can't understand that. It's too complicated. We just aren't even going to go there. If you don't, you will miss miss really important things in your Christian life. If you don't take the Gospels when you read them and it talks about God, you have, to, you have to ask yourself, is it talking about the Father? Is it talking about the Son? Or is it talking about the Holy Spirit? I think the Gospels will come alive to you as you begin to read them and begin to ask those kinds of questions. It's important for us to see this Trinitarian relationship. One God, three persons. And Jesus here shows us an example of how to resist sin. To, to look to the Father, the power of the Spirit. That's seeing His glory. The more that we ask those questions, the more that we wrestle with Scripture and, and take it as far as we can take it, don't dare take it farther than it speaks, but you can take it right up to where it does speak. And I think, I think someone who says that he did everything he did, both the resistance of sin... In, in the power of the Spirit and performed his miracles has, has basis to do that because of texts like this. I still haven't totally come to the point where I'm going to say that is where I'm at in it, but I think more and more I'm beginning to see that even in the miracles at times when Jesus performed them, it was by the power of the Spirit. Are there places where his, his divine nature broke through? Maybe. But ask those questions. Let, let the Scripture come alive to you. If, if Scripture has become ho-hum to you, maybe it's become ho-hum because you don't really ask questions of it. When you see texts like that, you don't think. We've, we've been taught not to think sometimes as we read. And it's done damage, I think. As you think, as you ask questions, I think the glory of Christ begins to rise up in His incarnational life. The second place that we see his glory, I think, in this text comes when he comes to, to uh, Simon's house. Now, you understand that's Peter, Simon, who later was called Peter. But he comes to Peter's house, and again, as you read the text, if you're reading and engaged in your reading, you realize you have to make the connection, Peter had a family because Peter had a mother-in-law. And so it says in the text that, that Jesus came to Simon's home and he raised Peter's mother-in-law from her from her bed of illness. In fact, raised her so completely that she went out to prepare for them in, in hosp hospitality ways. But here in the text, I think again we see some of the glory of Christ. We see the personal side of Christ. He took someone like Simon Peter's mother-in-law and he, he didn't run over the top of her need, but he came to her need. He met her need. He raised her here. Jesus is a God of compassion. This morning as we came to prayer time, I hope you see him as a God of compassion. I hope you see him as a God who we can bring our needs to, as one who wants to minister his grace. Does that mean he'll fix every circumstance? No. But one of the things that I believe that 
that Christ will do for us and what God will do for us is that in every circumstance He will provide all of the grace we need to live for His glory. Now maybe His glory may be in the raising of us. Maybe His glory will most be seen if He heals us. But His glory may also be seen in the fact that He gives us sustaining grace to live through the circumstances like Cooper lived through it. Cooper lived through his melancholy, through his depression to give us glorious Um, truth-filled hymns like the one we sang this morning that just burst forth with the glory of God. But the promise is that Jesus hears us. The incarnation says to us that He didn't stay absent of the brokenness, that He entered into it. And I hope you see that He came fully into that brokenness to live with you in it, to be dirty with you in the brokenness. He live there. And then you read and you think about Peter and you think about the disciples. Sometimes we glamorize them to the fact Peter had a family. Peter had a wife. Many believe Peter had children. And you start to read the Gospels in the context of that and the things that the disciples did in the context of family is where you live. If God doesn't come to where we live, then we have the wrong God. That's not the God of Scripture. There are other gods. There are lots of other gods. Small g out there. But there is no God like our God. There's no God. No eye has seen, no ear perceived any God like our God, it says in that passage in your bulletin, who acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. We have a God who's engaged. We have a God who comes to us. And the way we know that is to look back to the Incarnation. He entered fully into the brokenness all the way. And then we come to another point here this morning, another place where we see His glory. And that was seen in those around Jesus. It's interesting what happened around Jesus here. Um, His glory is seen in His Word. Look at verse 31. It says, When He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. There was something about what Jesus taught that rang true to the people, that had an authority, that had a reality to it, that what they'd been experienced with the scribes and the Pharisees didn't. That's kind of the contrast here. There was something about the way Jesus taught and what he taught that had a weightiness about it. Um, The word that we use sometimes in our congregation had a transcendence about it. Jesus' glory was seen by the people around Him. Why? Because Jesus was the Word. He wasn't second-hand sharing something. He was declaring. He was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when Jesus spoke, He was the Word. And that's what the people were sensing. They didn't understand that then. They didn't understand that this was God among them. And when He spoke, that was the Word. But they realized something was different. Something was different about Jesus. And when He spoke to these who were having difficulty, the way He did it is He spoke directly. He didn't do hocus-pocus. He didn't say some chant. He just spoke directly. He spoke directly to the demon and the demon left. 
There was an authority in Jesus' word. And there continues to be an authority in his word. There continues to be an authority in this word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There is a, an authority in the word. And I hope that we see the glory of his word. Much like the people did. That you are seeing the, the scriptures are being a, a help to you and a comfort to you. Um, I, I pray that as we, as we came to prayer time today, as we talked about and even William Cooper's life, and maybe you're going through a difficult time, that your heart and mind went to Scripture, went to the Word, to the place of real authority. It's one thing for me to say something. It's even another thing for William Cooper to write in him. But, but that's not the Word. It certainly can be about the Word, but I pray all of that takes us to the Word. Don't just accept something because I say it. Don't accept something because some hymn writer says it. Accept it because it's based on the Word and the Scripture permeates it. That The authority is in the Word. Do you live by the Word? Do you see the glory of Christ in His Word? <coughs> it's so important that we live there. There's a transcendence and authority. The people were amazed by the word here in the scripture. In verse 36, it says this. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For what authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. All reports about him went out into every place into the surrounding areas. There's a an authority in Christ. There's an authority in His Word. There's something in your life when you start to stand by this Word, it puts a solidity into your life. Now you properly have to interpret this Word. There are people who say they stand by this Word, but they put their own interpretation into it. It's not what the Word really says. That's why it's important to know what the Word says, but then to stand on the Word, to stand on what it says, and to hold to those promises. There's an authority in it. And the glory of Christ bursts forth out of this Word as we hold on to it. And it bursts forth among the people there. And then finally this morning, there's one other thing that I want us to see. And that's an interesting thing. If you look at verse 34, look what happens. It says, Ha, what have you to do with us? This is the demon speaking. What have had you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then if you go down to verse 41, it says this. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. It's interesting. I hope your mind is spinning. I hope your wheels are spinning. What do we, what do we read here? Who were the ones who really knew who Jesus was in this text? I'm convinced the people didn't fully. The people around Jesus didn't. They were amazed. They realized there was a sense of transcendence. They realized there was a sense of authority. But they would have not have said, you're the Holy One of God or you are the Son of God. They wouldn't have gone that far. They weren't there yet. Who said it? Who knew it? The demons knew it. So how do we put that together? What, what should that stir in our mind? I think what it should say is this to us. 
that there is a way to know who Jesus is and yet not see his glory. They didn't see it as glorious who Jesus was, but they knew who Jesus was. The difference between a demon and a Christian is they see the glory. They see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Demons don't see it as glorious, but they acknowledge it's true. For a Christian, what makes the difference, what causes us to go from death to life is when we see Jesus but we begin to see Jesus as glorious. It goes back to the statement that we exist to magnify Christ so that people might see, not know, but see something. And what do they see? They begin to see the glory of Christ. The demons see Christ. They know who Christ is, but they don't see His glory. Let me read to you this morning a commentary that comes out of an old book that was written a number of years ago. Listen to this commentator. He says this, let us, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It's a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. We may know the Bible intellectually and have no doubt about the truth of its contents. We may know, we may have our memories well stored with its leading text and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time the Bible may have no influence over our hearts and our wills and our consciences. We may in reality be nothing better than devils. Let it never content us to know religion with our heads only. We may go on all of our lives saying, I know that and I know that and sink at last into hell with the words upon our lips. Let us see that our knowledge bears fruit in our lives. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust and love Him? Does our knowledge of God's will make us strive to do it? Does our knowledge of the fruits of the Spirit make us labor to show them in our daily lives? Knowledge of this kind is really profitable. Any other religious knowledge will only add to our condemnation at the last day. It's true that way of the devils, isn't it? True of the demons. Their knowledge will only add to their condemnation. They knew who Christ was. They just didn't glory in Christ. They didn't see the glory of who Christ was. For us, I hope we're seeing more of the glory of Christ. I hope we're seeing it in His incarnation. We're seeing it in the fact, little things, like He got up early in the morning and He went out to pray. We begin to see what an amazing thing it is that the second person of the Trinity, fully God, at a point in time became fully man so that he could live and resist sin by getting up early in the morning and going out to pray to his Father for the power of the Spirit to resist sin. We'd start to see the gloriousness of those kinds of simple texts that we would ask enough questions to have them burst forth and we begin to see what God has really done for us in Christ. It's not head knowledge, but it's become glorious in our hearts. Do you see it this morning? Do you glory in it this morning? I pray so. 
We want to sing again. Matthew's going to come lead us. Just in the simple message of it all. It's not rocket science. The gospel is simple. Not simplistic, but it's simple. And I pray that we're seeing more and more of the glory of it and that it's transforming our lives as we see it. There's a way to see that's not profitable. The way to see is to see the glory of Christ. Let's stand and sing. incrementally over a 33 year time span of arising early to pray to look to his father and appropriate the power of the spirit to fight sin the battles got bigger and bigger Father, until one day your son was so pressed upon that he sweat drops of blood, it appeared. But he kept holding on. He kept looking to you. 
and ultimately became the candidate to bear the sin of all who believe fully. Oh, Lord, help us to see the glory of that. Help us not to run past that. Perfect man. Help us, Lord, strengthen us with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.